Ruth chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight the man was startled, and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring your garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest today, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. How could we summarize the story up to this point? Chapter 1, three dead men and three widow women. The family had left the house of bread looking for bread. And they went to the land of Moab, but there tragedy struck Elimelech, my God is king, was his name. He died, and then his two sons died, but after they had married two Moabite women. So that's how we have three dead men, and we have three widow women. The woman's name was Naomi, or Pleasant, and she decided to go back to House of Bread, Bethlehem. Uh, Her two daughters-in-law wanted to go with her, but she persuaded one of them to return to her own people to seek rest in the house of a new husband. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, clung to her and she pledged herself to her and to her God and to her people, even beyond death. And then that first chapter ends after going down, 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 down with a little bit of hope. It said they arrived in House of Bread at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then chapter 2 picks up with the barley harvest, with 
Ruth saying, let me go glean, that is, let me go pick up leftover grain in the field. And she said, I'll do that in the field of one in whose eyes I find favor. And so she just happened to find herself in the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz, it turns out, was a relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. And she began to work there, and Boaz took notice of her, and he showed her favor, and he protected her, and he gave her an abundance of grain, and even made it so that she could glean even more than she naturally would have. And so, there were two problems presented in the first chapter. The three widow women were empty, and they were liable to die of hunger, but it looks like in chapter 2 that that emptiness is going to be filled up. But there's another emptiness that we'll see if it can be filled up or not. And that is, the three dead men had lost all possibility of having a posterity. And so we pick up the story in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, it it ended sort of on a down note, didn't it? There were these subtle suggestions by the narrator about perhaps a relationship between Boaz and Ruth, and there were some some language that had to do with marriage, but then it ends the chapter at the end of the harvest, and where do we find Ruth? She's living with her mother-in-law, and she's not in contact with Boaz anymore. And then the curtain falls, the second act is over, and we're left wondering if she will ever see him again. And now we pick up the story in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Naomi takes the initiative here. And she says to Ruth in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now, this is fascinating because what she is saying here is that she wants to be the answer to her own prayer. Because if you go back to Ruth chapter 1, in verse... 9, she says to her daughters-in-law, she says this, The Lord grant that you may find what? Rest. Each of you in the house of her husband. So that's her prayer. She prayed that the Lord would grant them rest in the house of a husband. And now what does she do? She takes matters into her own hands and says, Should I not try to find you rest? So she's wanting to be the answer to her own prayer. And she somehow knows a small town. She somehow knows about what people are doing. And she says that Boaz, that relative in whose field you were gleaning, with whose young women you were working, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now winnowing, what is winnowing? We learned about gleaning last week. Winnowing was taking the the harvested grain and beating it and and throwing it up in the air and separating the, the chaff from the kernels. And that was what was going on. That was men's work. The harvesting was men and women together, but winnowing was men's work, and they did it in a place where the the wind would blow, at the, the winnowing floor. And somehow she knew that he would be there, and somehow she knew that he would be spending the night there, perhaps to protect the, the heaps of grain. And so what she emphasizes here, once again, she says, Is not Boab, verse 2, Is not Boab whose relative? Our relative, she's including Ruth 
in the people. She's including Ruth in the clan of her dead husband, Elimelech. And so she gives some instructions, and she has a very, very ingenious, but very, very risky plan. She tells her to wash herself, and to perfume herself, and to to get dressed, and to go down. And once he lies down to go and to uncover his feet and to lie down there, and then she simply says, do whatever he says to do. Now, chapter 2 had some suggestive language. Chapter 3 is highly charged with suggestive language. It is no longer uh, maybe so, maybe not. Last week we were left wondering, am I just imagining things or not? Am I picking up some clues here, some vibes here? But here it is very, very blatant. This incident takes place at night in the dark, at the threshing floor. And if you look in other places, for example, if you're taking notes, Hosea chapter 9-1, that's a place where prostitution sometimes took place. Why? It's a place where men gathered uh, by themselves, and it was a festive time, and they would spend the night there, and so it was a place where sometimes prostitution took place. Also, we recognize Ruth's preparation to this day as what a woman does if she wants to attract a man. Uh, we also, the verb to lie down in Hebrew, like in other languages, has a couple of different meanings. Uh, in addition to that, the verb to uncover uh, also in, in Hebrew has uh, the uh, meaning also sometimes of undress. Look at, look at Leviticus chapter 18 where that's used repeatedly about sexually immoral acts. And also the word feet. The word feet also could be a euphemism for other organs of the male or female body. You could look at Judges chapter 3 verse 24. So this, this chapter is shot through with this very, very suggestive language. Regardless of the risks involved, regardless of how, how little she understood about the local customs, Ruth simply said this, All that you say, I will do. That's the first movement of this, this chapter. And then she goes and she does it. Verse 6 and following. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And it, it worked like a charm. Uh, Boaz had worked, he had eaten, he had drunk, his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, once again perhaps to protect it from any who want, anyone who might want to pilfer it that night. And she did just what her mother-in-law said. She came softly, she uncovered his feet, and she simply lay down there. And then, at midnight, the man was startled. Perhaps his feet got cold as the air got colder, and he was startled by something, or perhaps he he rolled over and, and actually touched her with his feet. We don't know exactly what happened. And he sat up, he turned over, and he could tell that there was a woman at his feet. So her profile was enough to see that it was a woman, but he could not recognize her. And then he asked the question in verse 9. And the question was this, who are you? Now, that's a pretty obvious question to ask, isn't it? 
if you find yourself ever on a threshing floor by yourself, sleeping at night, and you wake up, and there is someone of the opposite sex at your feet, it's a good question to ask, right? Who are you? Um, however, we need to see this question in the light of the, the whole message of this book. Because this is the second time that Boaz has asked a question like this about Ruth. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, when uh, Boaz first took notice of Ruth, he asked this question. I'm sorry, that's not the right verse. Uh, the verse is, let's see, got ahead of myself here, 2, verse 5. Uh, there he says, Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? That is, to whom does she belong? And that's the question of this book. Is she Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow, the foreigner? Or who, is she part of Israel as she has pledged herself to be? Is she under God's protection as she desired to be? That was the question in chapter 2. And now he asked the question again. And he said, who are you? That's the question that this whole book is answering. Who is Ruth? And who is she to become? Now I want you to look at her answer. In verse, in verse 9, she says this, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, there are a couple of interesting things about this. How is she often described up to this point? Ruth the Moabitess. No more Moabitess here. She says, I am Ruth. She introduces herself with her name as a person. And then she calls herself a servant. Now, this is difficult to bring out in English, but there are different words for servant. And if you go back and look at chapter 2, verse 13, there she was prostrate prostrate before Boaz, and she says to him, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And there it is, the, the lowliest word for servant. And now here she uses another word. We maybe would translate it something like, I am your handmaiden. It's still a a servile kind of word, but it is a more exalted sort of word, and it is a word that could be used for a candidate in marriage. So she is saying, I am Ruth, no longer Ruth the Moabitess, I am Ruth. She's presenting herself as a woman with a name, and she is saying, I am your handmaiden. So far, so good. And now we see something about Ruth's character. And we also see that she understood things perhaps better than her mother-in-law knew that she did. Because here she seems to to go on her own. Here she begins to improvise. Her mother-in-law has just said, do this and then do whatever he tells you. But Ruth here takes the initiative in a rather surprising way. She says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer or a kinsman. And we saw last week that the kinsman had the responsibility to rescue relatives from situations into which they had fallen when it was hard for them. But she says here, spread your wings over me. And this is exceedingly clever for two reasons. One, it was uh, an expression that was used to spread the wing of your garment over me, a man extending his garment over the woman in order to claim her as his wife. And here it's very suggestive because there's the blanket and they're lying there on the ground and she says, spread your wings over me. Uh, however, there's something else going on here. 
If we go back to chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz met Ruth and recognized her kindness toward her mother-in-law, he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she used that same word when she spoke to Boaz. Boaz, you prayed to God that God would bless me and give me a full recompense. And you said that I was under His wings. Now, Boaz, our Redeemer, spread your wings over me. You, Boaz, be an answer to your own prayers for me. Now, Boaz responds by blessing her and recognizing that her kindness was exceptional. Verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. What kindness is he referring to? This word kindness, chesed, has shown up in chapter 1. It's shown up in chapter 2, and now it shows up once again in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he says, "Your this kindness is even greater than your former kindness. And he's not referring to her kindness toward him. He's not saying, thank you so much for being kind to me and offering yourself in marriage to me. He's referring to her kindness to Naomi. Her faithful love to Naomi. And then he explains that. He says, this is greater because you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You see, she could have, she could have wed, she could have married for love. She could have married a poor man for love. Or she could have married for money. She could have married a rich man. And there were people in her age category that she could have gone after. And uh, he says, you didn't do that. But you proposed marriage to me. Now, how is that a kindness to Naomi? Well, it was a kindness to Naomi because if she had married outside of the clan, that there would be no possibility of redemption for the extinct line of her dead husband, Elimelech. There would be no redemption for them. The line would end with Elimelech and his two dead sons. But if, if she were to remain in the family, if she were willing to marry inside the clan a kinsman, then, according to a law that we're going to look at, then there's a possibility that the name of Elimelech would not be extinguished from the earth. That's the kindness to which he refers. Now, the, the verse in question here is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. We have to say that this situation in Ruth is unlike any we find anywhere else in the Old Testament. But what it looks like is they took this principle that we're going to read in Deuteronomy 25 and in the time of Naomi and Ruth, it was extended beyond the application that we find here. So Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. 
her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this situation covers a situation with two brothers. And if one of the brothers dies childless, the other brother is to raise up uh, an offspring for the dead brother. But it looks like in the time of, of Elimelech and Baal Boaz and Ruth and Naomi that this had been extended beyond simply two brothers living together. And it became the responsibility of the kinsmen to do this for anyone who had fallen into this situation of dying childless and the name being, uh, being threatened with extinction. That is, Ruth was willing to marry, uh, marry Boaz, not out of concern for herself. She had other opportunities, as Boaz recognized. It was out of concern for her mother-in-law. That's the chesed, that's the kindness. And then Boaz repeated Ruth's words to her. Look at verse 11, going back to Ruth, chapter, chapter 3. Ruth 11 says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Have we heard that before? Naomi says to Ruth, this is what you should do. How does Ruth respond? Whatever you say, I will do. Ruth does what she says, and now Naomi responds saying to Ruth, I will do whatever you say. So what's going on here? Ruth is now the intermediary. And now Boaz is really responding to Naomi, his relative. Now, Boaz described her in verse 11 in an interesting way. He says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. A worthy woman. Go back and look at chapter 2, verse 1. The narrator introduces Boaz in this way. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a what? Worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. So he is described as a worthy man, and now he in turn describes Ruth as a worthy woman. In other words, they're a good match, aren't they? Worthy man should have what? Worthy woman. But there's something else interesting here. This word is not used often. It shows up in a couple other places in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, the last chapter ends with a question. And it uses this word. A worthy wife who can find. And then it gives a description of the worthy wife. But something you should know about the arrangement of the Hebrew Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is that the next book after Proverbs is Ruth. And so the question is asked in Proverbs 31.10, a worthy wife who can find, what's the immediate answer to that question? Boaz found one, and her name is Ruth. Now, just as we thought, everything was going so swimmingly well, Boaz introduces a complication. He says in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer And now we expect, and so they got married and lived happily ever after. But he says, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. 
remain tonight and in the morning. If He will redeem you, good, let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. He told Ruth to remain that night, to remain that night. And here, this is a verb that does not have any sort of sexual connotation. Remain here this night. And so this is clearing up any confusion that we might have had. Now the narrator set us up for this. The narrator made us wonder, but now he clarifies that no, they did not step out of the realm of propriety and of biblical instructions. They resisted temptation. And so Naomi's gamble paid off because she could count on him being a worthy man and Ruth being a worthy woman. He says, I will take care of this this day. Now, um, we see that he's a worthy man in addition because he wasn't going to try to cut any corners here. The other guy was first in line to redeem And so he was going to go with custom and he was going to talk with that person and see if he would redeem. And if so, that was fine. But if he wouldn't, that he would fulfill his responsibility. So she lies down at his feet until the morning and then she arose at dark. And of course, this is awkward, isn't it? He can't send her out in the middle of the night. That would be dangerous for a woman. But at the same time, he doesn't want her to be discovered there in the morning. And so before dawn, uh, she gets up and she goes away. But he does something significant here, and it's doubly significant. First of all, he loads her up with grain. It says six measures of grain. We don't know how much grain that was, but it was a significant amount of grain. She could carry it, but perhaps barely. He says, give me your garment, hold it out. He fills her up with grain. And that did a couple of things. The first thing it did, it gave a reason for her to be out so early. If somebody saw her walking back home early in the morning, they would say, oh, there she is, showing more kindness to her mother-in-law. She went out very early and and got winnowed grain as soon as she could. And she's she's providing for her mother-in-law. She goes to her mother-in-law. We'll see the second reason in just a second. She goes to her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law, in in verse 16, asks her a question. And I, I sort of regret that this question is not left literally like it is in Hebrew. It says in verse 16, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? This is the exact same question in the Hebrew, that Boaz had asked Ruth when he discovered a woman at his feet. And what's the question? Who are you? So this is the third time, the third time this question has been asked about Ruth. Whose is this young woman? And then, who are you from Boaz to Ruth? And then, who are you from Naomi to Ruth? This is the big question of this this story. Who is she? And you see, here the question is, who are you, Ruth? I know who you are, I know your name is Ruth, but explain to me who you are today after what happened last night. Are you, are you Ruth the Moabitess, the widow, the foreigner? Are you Ruth the one who has fallen into an immoral relationship last night? Are you Ruth the betrothed of Boaz, the redeemed one? Who are you 
this morning, Ruth, after what happened last night. And then she, she answered by explaining all that the man had done. And then she explained the six measures of barley. It says, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. This is the second time we've heard that word, empty. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 21, do you remember when Ruth and Naomi showed up in House of Bread, Bethlehem? And the women said, is that Naomi? They could barely recognize her apparently. And then she burst out in a rant of anger and said, don't call me Naomi. She said, call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because the Lord has treated me bitterly. I went away full and I came back empty. Empty. That was one of the problems. The widows came back empty. And so what was Boaz doing here? And saying, no longer will these widows be empty. They will be full once again. So he was solving, he was solving the problem of their emptiness in terms of their lack of food. They would not starve to death. They would be full once again. Now, there was this question of the emptiness, though, of the posterity for Elimelech and Kilion and Machlon. Would they be forever empty? Well, we end this chapter with the possibility of them having a, a posterity through Ruth and one of Elimelech's kinsmen. But we're left hanging at the end of the chapter, aren't we? Because we don't know which one it would be. And it looks like Naomi is happy either way. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And then the curtain comes down, the lights dim on the stage, and we're left with this word hanging in the auditorium today. It's as if she turns to the camera, he will solve this matter today. And that's how it ends. Now, the narrator is is setting us up again, isn't he? Because it looks like Naomi doesn't really care. Which of the redeemers comes through, does she? But let me ask you, do you care? Let's take a vote. Okay, we have the unnamed kinsman, who's first in line, and then we have Boaz, okay? Um, How many of you vote for the unnamed kinsman? Okay, how many vote for Boaz? Okay, it's unanimous. Do you see what he's done to us? The narrator has set us up. And now we have to wait. So I guess you have to come back next week to find out which of these kinsmen is the one who will redeem Naomi. But before we close, let's think of a couple of lessons that this chapter has for us today. One of them is this. We should notice that both Naomi and Boaz prayed for Ruth. And then both Naomi and Boaz gave themselves to be the answers to their own prayers. There is a time to pray. 
And there is a time to act. And if we are going to pray for something, we ought also, if it is in our power, to be willing to do what we can to bring that prayer to pass. We're praying for the stricken in the Bahamas. Are we doing something concretely to help the people of the Bahamas? We are praying for unreached people groups around the world. Are we doing what we can to try to to provide missionaries so that they can go to those unreached people groups? We're praying that we would reach our neighbors here with the gospel. Are we taking the gospel to our neighbors? You see how this works? It is not a quietism, a passivism of simply praying and letting God do His thing. How does God do His thing? We see how He does His thing. This chapter is all about human initiative. They prayed when it was time for prayer. They acted when it was time for action. May the same thing be said about us, that we prayed and then we acted that we might be the fulfillment of our own prayers. But there's another lesson here as well. And that is a lesson about who can be a redeemer. Who can be a redeemer? And it's clear that the only one who can redeem or rescue is a relative. Is a relative. No one else could redeem. No one else could rescue. No one else could buy back. In order to do that, you had to be a relative. And this explains the incarnation of of the Son of God as a human being. Why did the Son of God have to be born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Why did the Son of God have to become a man? He had to become a man so that He could be our Redeemer. There was no other way. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says it like this, Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is, sacrifice for the sins of the people. What did He have to do? The Son of God had to be made like us in every way except for one that's clarified later. Except for sin. But He had to be our relative. There was no other way He could be our Redeemer. An angel could not be our Redeemer. Another human could not be our Redeemer. We needed a perfect Redeemer who was our relative. You see, there were two possible Redeemers in the story of Ruth, weren't there? There were two possible Redeemers. And we'll see which one of them can do the job. And Boaz says, if he is unwilling, I will do it. You see, we have many relatives, don't we, as humans? We have many relatives. But none of them, even if they are willing, are able. It has to be the Son of God to redeem us. And He has to be our relative. Only the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, is one who can make propitiation, that is, an acceptable sacrifice for our sins, that through faith in Him, we might be rescued from the guilt of our sin, and from the consequences of our sin. So there is a Redeemer. And that Redeemer is our relative. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that there is a Redeemer. If these widows had been left with no Redeemer, they would have been left to extinction themselves and their 
their dead husbands as well. But we thank You that in this story there was a Redeemer, and we thank You even more that there is a Redeemer, Jesus, Your own Son, who has become one of us, who had to be made like us, no other way, as Your Word says, except that the, the Son of God become one of us. We praise You, O God, for our Redeemer, who is our relative. And I pray for all of us that we would find redemption, that we would find rescue, that we would find release from the guilt and the consequences of our sin through faith in Your Son, our only Redeemer. And we pray in His name. Amen.